our Heavenly Father, this is the desire of our heart. That you would show us Christ. That you would reveal your glory through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My oldest son has discovered Harry Potter. So that means we are now in that world. Most of you have read the books or seen the movies. For the five of you who haven't, let me recap. Harry was an orphan boy who lived with his aunt and uncle, and they treated him poorly, a little like Cinderella. He lived in a closet, and he only got grubby, hand-me-down clothes, and he was treated badly by his whole family. And then one day, a magical letter arrived, but his uncle tore it up. Never fear, the next day, three more arrived. His uncle tore them up too. More and more arrived. The letters were telling Harry that he had a different identity. He was a wizard, and he was being invited to attend a magical and a mysterious school. His uncle, though, was determined to not let the school get in touch with Harry. He took them to a hotel, but the letters arrived there. Finally, they retreat to a shack on an island in the turbulent waters of the English Channel. But even there, a magical friend of Harry's parents came and knocked down the door. It was time for school. Even if you aren't familiar with the story, even if you don't like it, I hope that you can see the glimmers of truth. Harry has an identity, and it will not be denied, sort of like Neo in The Matrix, or Jason Bourne in The Bourne Identity, or Mia Thermopolis in The Princess Diaries. <laughs> you see... Much like these stories, the Lord will not let us go until we embrace our identity of who we are in Christ. And each summer, Harry would return home to his family, and he would be a stranger in a strange land. You see, like Harry Potter, Peter was reminding these Christians in the first century that we have an identity that we have an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, and will not fade away. You see, here is an important truth for anyone sitting here today, whether you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ or not. All of us in this room, to some extent, are faithful to the identity that we have of ourselves. What you think about Who you think about, who you are, your identity, will determine how you behave. And what we as Christians are seeking to do from the epistle of 1 Peter is to understand who we are in Christ and to understand how God sees us. This is the pattern all throughout the New Testament and really all of Scripture. If you look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the first three chapters are all indicatives. Who you are. The last three chapters of Ephesians are the imperatives. How then you ought to live. You see, first there is identity, and then there is behavior. First there is doctrine, and then there is duty. And we cannot get those reversed. 
So already in this series from James, we've learned that we are loved, and we've learned that we are chosen, and today we are going to understand that we are exiles. This is another label that Peter gives us in chapter 1, verse 1. You are elect exiles. He uses this word again in verse 17 in chapter 1. And then he uses similar words in chapter 2, verse 11, when he refers to us as sojourners and exiles. Now, he may have been referring to literal exiles because these were believers living in what is modern-day Turkey. But I think Peter is speaking figuratively that he is referring to their spiritual exile. You see, the recipients of this letter are both Jews and Gentiles. And Peter teaches that the new Israel is God's chosen people, the church. He has joined the church to Israel. The church is the continuation of spiritual Israel, those who truly believe. And this church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, and it's now dispersed around the world, and we are known as exiles. Now, what do these two words mean to be sojourners and exiles? The first one, sojourners, means that our citizenship is not of this place. This would have been very easily understood by first century Christians. Uh, Take, for example, in Philippians 3.20 when Paul wrote, but our citizenship is in heaven. See, during this time they had city-states. And so if you were a citizen of Rome, no matter where you were in the Roman Empire, you had certain rights, responsibilities, and privileges because you were a Roman citizen. Even if you lived in some place like Corinth, you still had an identity. There was a change in legal status if you were a Roman citizen. If you are a Christian, there has actually been a change in your legal status as well. You are a citizen of the new heavens, the heavenly city, New Jerusalem. You are a foreigner living in a foreign land. Now, what does it mean that we are exiles? It means that we are strangers or pilgrims. It implies that we are in transition, but that we have settled down briefly among the native people. You see, Christians will one day be in their true home, but we're not there yet. So we are temporary residents of wherever we are living. We actually have a perfect example of this in our senior pastor, who is from Scotland. James Forsyth is a resident alien. In a lot of ways, right, he's similar to us. In a lot of ways, he's very different from us. He wears plaid skirts and uses language that we don't understand. I said that in the first service, and someone thought I said plaid shirts. And uh, he had to clarify later. He was like, what do you have against plaid shirts? Nothing. (laughs) He is a resident alien. He's a foreigner away from home. And in some ways, he looks like us. And in other ways, he doesn't. You see, being in exile means that we are a chosen race, not based on our ethnicity, but based on grace. Peter tells us we are a new race, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests under God, We are the church, 
not the United States of America. We are God's own possession, His spiritual house, His temple of living people. Christian, that is your citizenship, the new heavens and the new earth, and that is your destination. When we gather on Sundays, in a sense, we gather as an embassy, the church. We read our covenant documents. We hear the constitution of the heavenly Jerusalem. We are reminded that we are already in the presence of God and we pledge our allegiance to our heavenly king who alone is our rightful Lord and sovereign. Friends, love this country, but remember it is not our home. You and I are exiles. So then, how should we live? Well, that's really the second part of 1 Peter that begins in verse 11. But before we look at how we ought to live as strangers and exiles, let me remind you that Peter lived in a society that was more degenerate and threatening to the church than today. And Peter is letting us know that we can live as believers, as followers of Jesus, in any circumstance. These Christians were facing fiery trials, insults, accusations, beatings, social ostracism, and violence. Can't you just imagine these believers protesting to Peter? Peter, you want us to do what? You want us to publicly identify as Christians to be salt and light in a culture that might persecute us? Peter, you are crazy. Have you not heard about Nero? Don't you know that if we publicly profess faith in Christ, that we will be likely to be thrown in jail? Peter, don't you know if you keep preaching the gospel, you yourself might be imprisoned. You yourself might even be crucified upside down. But what is Peter's response? Peter neither advocates isolation or absorption. You see... Living as exiles is way more nuanced than you think when it comes to social and political realities. There's not one single proper way for Christians to relate to a given culture as a whole. But Peter, he gives us two principles in these verses. What are they? Abstain and keep. The first one, Peter said, abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Where does Peter say that our principal danger as believers lies? Where is the war? Persecutors? Mobs? Secular media? No, he says our principal danger is within us, my own soul. D.L. Moody summed it up really well when he said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any man I know. You see, more dangerous than the hostility of the state, the anger of persecutors, suicide bombers, more dangerous to me than anything else in the world is what is inside me. Desires of the flesh. Now what does that mean? We don't mean that in a Gnostic way that the body is bad. What it means is we are not to have inordinate desires. Look back at the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1. What are these inordinate desires? What do they lead to? It leads to malice, to deceit, to hypocrisy, to slander, to envy. You see, what is envy? Envy is a good desire gone wrong. Envy is resenting those who have more than you, whether they have more beauty 
or they have more success than you. What do I desire? What wages within my soul that I want more than Jesus that would make me cheat, steal, lie, deceive in order to get it? That is what is occurring in my soul. These are the things that wage war against us. Someone pointed this out, probably a Navy man, that it isn't the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that will sink the ship. You see, a ship can ride out most severe storms so long as it isn't capsized or punctured so that water invades it. There may be great external threats and storms, but if the water is kept out, then the ship can remain afloat. That's why we are told as disciples of Jesus that we are in the world, but we are not of it. John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. You see, the problem is not the Christian in the world. The problem is the world in the Christian. Whatever takes your eyes off of Christ, whatever discourages us from serving Him in the church, or compromises our spirituality or morality in any way, that is what can destroy our souls. And there is a battle over it. You see, for many of us, Before we can fight ethics in the public sphere, we must have a personal reformation in our own home, in our own lives, in our own soul. The second principle that Peter gives us of how we should live as exiles is this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. God's purpose in choosing you and I to follow Him is to glorify God and to make His glorious grace known among the nations. We are made in His image and we are to represent His excellencies as verse 9 says to a watching world. What does that world excellent means? It means beautiful, surpassing, precious, commendable, admirable, and good. We are to serve as witnesses of the glory and grace of an awesome God. Do you understand that's why God chose Israel in the Old Testament? He chose them to be blessed so that they would be a blessing to the nations around them. That He would govern them in such a way that the nations would look at Israel and know that they serve a just, a compassionate, a graceful, and a merciful God. They should know something about the character of God by the way that the Israelites Lived. Two illustrations of that in my own life. One has to do with parenting. One of the questions that a friend has been asking me a lot is, what will your children know about our Heavenly Father through you, their earthly father? Will my kids know that our Heavenly Father is full of grace, that He's compassionate, that he's wise, that he's just, that our God is easy to repent to. Parents, is it easy for your kids to repent to you? Second illustration is this, is marriage. Do you know that God created marriage to display the way that Christ loves the church? Before the creation of the world, 
the Trinity, the Godhead, determined that marriage is going to be the way that the world would know what true love is. When the world looks at me, when the world looks at my marriage, do they see that God is not selfish? Do they see that God is a God who makes sacrifices? Do they see that God is someone who would lay down their rights, send his son into the world to redeem and save the world? Does the world know that God by the way that I parent, by the way that I love my spouse, by the way that I'm single, by the way that I work in the marketplace? We are called to abstain and to keep and to live in such a way that people want to know our God. Peter says to live as exiles among the Gentiles. Gentiles means the world. We want the world to know that our God cares for them because we care for them. We want the world to know that they can trust us because our God is trustworthy. We want to know that our God will help anyone in need because we will help anyone in need. This is our strategy. It's simplistic. Love Jesus and love other people. That's it. Peter and Paul both modeled this in the book of Acts. Think about the transformation in the life of Peter. Peter went from one who would chop the ear off of someone who was arresting Jesus to go to being willing to be arrested himself. Paul, in Acts chapter 16, he and Silas are arrested for preaching the gospel. They are beaten. They are stripped naked. They are thrown in prison and they have chains around their ankles. And do you know what they did? Not what I would do. But do you know what they did? They sang psalms. They had a worship service in prison. And then this earthquake comes and the doors to the jail cell open up and they could flee. But they stay there. You know, the jailer was about to commit suicide because he would have been killed for allowing the prisoners to escape. And as he's about to kill himself, Paul calls out, Don't do it. We are all here. He's living honorably. Do you know what the response of the jailer was? Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul told him, and they had a baptism service right there in the prison. You see, Paul understood that we are aliens and strangers, abstaining from sin and living good lives. And let us not be naive, church. Remember that sometimes when the church is faithful, culture is transformed. And sometimes when the church is faithful, the culture persecutes us. As verse 12 says, they will speak against you. You see, a Christian's identity can be a source of joy and also the reason for suffering various kinds of trials. Are we willing to suffer alienation in our society out of obedience to Christ? It's a question for all of us to wrestle with. For me, it seems really hard. Sometimes it even seems impossible. Where are we going to get the power to live as exiles? The answer to that question is the first word in chapter 11. Peter says, Beloved. 
He's reminding them of who they are. They are surrounded by His love like gravity. Gravity holds the biggest mountain steady and it maintains the dewdrop on each blade of grass. God's love is all over us. And because Christ loves us, we are beloved. Because Christ is the cornerstone, we are living stones. Like Tom pointed out, how can we love the world like this? The way that we can love the world like this is realizing that we have been loved like this. Because he first loved us, we go out into the world with the same love that we have experienced. How has he loved us? First Peter tells us over and over, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were in darkness, and now you have light. What makes this possible is Jesus. Why? Because he was willing to become an exile, the sojourner of heaven. He is the true outsider, the pilgrim of pilgrims, the Hebrew of Hebrews, an alien to this world, a stranger rejected by it and executed by it. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was the living stone that was rejected by men, but precious in the sight of God. He abstained when the devil offered to give him the world. He trusted the promises of the Heavenly Father. He kept his conduct honorable so that they clearly saw his good deeds that even at his trial, Pilate could find no fault with him. He committed no sin, but he was executed outside the city, buried in a borrowed tomb. You see, he was rejected. He became an exile so that we could be accepted. And friends, that is powerful. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Don't retreat, but engage as Jesus did, because you are beloved. Forgive when the world hurts you. Love when you get nothing in return. Show mercy and grace and be salt and light. Abstain because you trust that he loves you and he knows what is most enjoyable. Be honorable because you are beloved. In a very simple way, be good in the mundane. Show respect. Submit. And at times, be exceptional. Let me close with this illustration. In the 18th century, there was a movement known as the Moravians. It was started by a man named Count von Zinzendorf. It's just fun to say. He was a German religious and social reformer. And on his estate, several refugees came to him and they formed a community. And initially, the hallmark of this gathering was community. They were known for this saying that Christianity cannot exist without community. When Count Zinzendorf was traveling, though, to Denmark, he got a vision for the nations. And so as he went back to this Moravian community, he began to train them. He began to send them out in the hundreds 
around the world to proclaim the gospel. And proclaim the gospel they did. Let me tell you about three ways they did it really quickly. On one occasion when they were traveling to Georgia in 1735, a terrible storm came upon their ship. The mast was broken and everyone on the ship was frightened. And in the midst of that, the Moravians were singing. Men, women, and children. They were different. They were not afraid to die. And one man noticed it. He knew they had something that he didn't. It was actually something that God would use in his life to convert him. His name was John Wesley. An intuitive Moravian actually encountered Wesley. And he saw John as a troubled man. And he walked right up to him and he said, Do you know Jesus Christ? And John replied, I know he's the savior of the world. And the man shot back. But do you know that he saved you? You see, he would later write in his journal that he didn't know. And he would write about his experience when he became, when he experienced his identity. Two other quick illustrations on the Moravians. I'll be very quick. But two of the other things that they did, a group of Moravians went to a leper colony in South Africa. There were literally thousands of leopards inside this colony with high walls. And as they appeared over the walls, they said, who is going to take the gospel to them? They asked the city officials if they could go in there, and the city officials told them they could, but they could never leave. They might live five months, five years, or ten years, but once they go inside this leper colony, they cannot leave. They said, sign us up. On another occasion, a group went to the West Indies, and they encountered a plantation, a horrible situation. They wanted to take the gospel to the slaves. They asked the slave owners if they could do that. The slave owners said, there's only one way. You have to become a slave. We will own you. They said, okay. They went and they lived and they served there in order that they might proclaim the gospel to those people. How did they get the power to do this? They knew they were loved. They knew this world was not their home. They were living as aliens and strangers. Friends, on the one hand, we are pilgrims and strangers and we are good citizens submitting to authorities. But while we do, we are never prisoners of the authorities. And so it's what Peter says, we live as free men and as free women. Martin Luther wrote The Freedom of the Christian. It actually broke up in 16th century Europe. My favorite line from it. Christian is the freest person of all and the slave of none. But the Christian in Jesus Christ is prepared to become bound to all and the servant of everyone. Do you want to be free? Then live as aliens and strangers. Let's pray. Father, this is an amazing thing that you call us to do. But remind us that we are your chosen ones, that we are beloved exiles. Help us to live as aliens and strangers in this world in order that others might be drawn into a relationship with you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray.